hope that you have your uh, thinking caps on and that you're ready to learn and ready to grow in the Lord. And remember, we've we're been challenged to be uh, quality hearers, Jesus said. Let, let he who has ears to hear. It I, looks like everyone has ears, so that's a good thing. So make sure you're hearing and digesting. By the way, you know this, we've all had, when you were a kid, there's probably some point in your life where your parents looked at you and said, are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Now, they knew that the audio sounds were going into your ear, but that was different than, are you hearing me? So uh, Jesus said we should be careful how we hear, how we listen, so let's pay attention and, and listen to what the Holy Spirit might speak to your heart and life today. Well, I was doing some reading in, in uh, Francis Asbury's journal. Now, Francis Asbury was a bishop of the Methodist Church and probably responsible for the growth of, of the Methodist Church in the United States of America, uh, probably the biggest influence on it. And he was a circuit rider. So I want to throw up a circuit rider here so you might know what's a circuit rider. Well, between 1766 and 1844, uh, these Methodist circuit riders would go out and preach the gospel, and they had a circuit, which we might call a district or a route that they went. And their goal was to impact that region with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this guy... You remember the Asbury Revival that's happened a couple times? Asbury College of Wilmore, Kentucky is named after Francis Asbury, and he was a circuit rider for 40 years. Now, this is no joke. They, historically, they say that 50% of circuit riders were dead by the age of 30. It was hard. You were exposed to the elements, to diseases, to bandits, to wild beasts, to all kinds of things. So most of them didn't live past 30. He was a circuit rider for 40 years. When he's 66 years old, he's writing in his journal. He's just come by horseback from, from Ontario. Him and a, a partner were up there ministering. Most of the time you went on your own, but as Francis got older, in his late 50s and early 60s, he had an aide that came with him. Well, they rode 540 miles from Ontario down into, I think it was Pennsylvania, to preach and to minister. There was a, a circuit there called the Bedford Circuit. And the Bedford Circuit uh, didn't have a circuit rider. And he was so burdened by them. And he's, he was just pray, calling out to the Lord. He said, they're like a sheep without shepherd. He said, we need a strong circuit rider, strong in body, strong in spirit, strong in soul, strong in vision for what God might do. And he was thinking and praying over the Bedford Circuit, and his heart was moved. And he said, I mean, he's asking, what could I do? And he answered the question. He said, what could I do? He said, I'm old, I'm weak. He said, I could do so little. Now, he wrote that after riding 540 miles by horseback. And at the end of his ministry, he had ridden 270,000 miles by horseback. Did you catch that? 270,000 miles. Now, I've ridden 125,000 plus miles on a motorcycle, been in every state in the United States except Alaska. And Darlene says she cannot wait to ride with me to Alaska. And so we're going to get that done. Well, she'll probably... FaceTime me when I do that. And so I think that's pretty impressive, 125,000 plus miles until I read Francis Asbury rode 270,000 miles on a horse. And they didn't have luxurious roads or anything like that. And I think he's preached over 16,000 times. In 40 years, that's an average of eight times a week. And here's this guy saying, I can do so little. I just don't know. I'm thinking, what? 
Because then my mind goes to an evening not too long ago where Darlene and I are sitting on the couch, and one of us brings up the idea, hey, you want to go out to um, Texas Roadhouse and eat? And so I said, well, it takes 15 minutes to get there. And, of course, you have to drive back, so that's another 15 minutes. And so I said, that's the whole 30 minutes. And so we're sitting there on the couch and kind of getting lazy. And I said, why don't we just eat here? I mean, that's a whole whopping 30 minutes round trip. Now, I, I was going to be in a climate-controlled vehicle riding on pristine roads and thought 15 minutes was, whew, that's a big commitment. We better not do that. And then you read this, you go, oh, my goodness, unbelievable. So we're going to talk about a really hard topic today. It's a, it's a tough one, but we're going to get it from the Word of God. And the Word of God, by the way, doesn't always bring you warm fuzzies. I just want you to know that. You know, you think, oh, that's such a beautiful passage. Uh, and there's a lot of beautiful passages. But the Word of God uh, has some purposes to it, and it's designed. The primary purpose is we're supposed to become disciples. Now, Jesus said that. Go into all the world and make disciples. Now, disciples are learners that we've talked about. They're, we're students, and Jesus and his word is our teaching. And so we're supposed to learn of Jesus and learn of his word. And that begins to transform our lives and turns us into disciples, fully devoted followers of Jesus. We aren't just supposed to make converts. Now, that's the beginning of discipleship, is that we hear the gospel message, we respond to it, we come to know Jesus as our Savior. But you know this, there's far too many people, genuinely heaven-bound, that aren't any further along in their journey with Jesus 20 years later because they've never become disciples. They've never learned the word of God and practiced the word of God. So Paul is raising up a disciple and mentoring him. His name's Timothy, and so I want to look at these words because the word has some purpose for it. So let's throw that up there in Timothy. It says, but as for you... He's writing to Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of. I want you to learn the word of God and become convinced of it. It says, because you know those from whom you learned it. If you read First and Second Timothy, you learned that Timothy learned the scriptures from his mother and his grandmother. And now he's learned it from Paul, an apostle. And Paul was like a father to him. And so He's basically saying, Timothy, you know mama and grandma and myself are super trustworthy and we have only your best intentions in mind. So you know from whom you learned this and how from infancy, from a little kid, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now look at the value of the Holy Scriptures. See, this is part of discipleship that you pause and slow down just a little bit to mine out some good stuff out of the Word. So it says, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. The word of God makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what a beautiful gift the scriptures give us is, is wisdom to see Christ in it and to receive Christ and to have eternal life. I mean, life is, is kind of short here on planet Earth, even if you live to be a, 150 years old compared to eternity. So we want eternal life, not just temporary life. It says all scripture is God-breathed. That should get our attention. It's God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful, it's helpful, it's profitable for teaching. That one's good. For rebuking. I don't know anybody likes to be rebuked, but it's good for rebuking, and it's part of the process. It's good for correcting 
and it's good for training. And it, it trains us in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. We are supposed to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Remember, before the foundation of the world, God had good works for us to do. And so here we have the word of God has those four, at least those four effects of, of teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so we can be everything God's calls to be and we can fulfill the purposes of God in our life. So it's a beautiful thing, and it's sometimes a tough thing, but we're going to talk about a tough thing today, and we're going to talk about, I call this discipleship's enemy, laziness. Laziness. Now, as I so often say when we hit hard topics, I know none of us here need this, but there's people in our lives who need to hear this, okay? So discipleship's uh, enemy is laziness. So we don't want to be lazy. Now, by the way, I really encourage you to apply this sermon to you. It will be more fun to apply it to your spouse or your kids or your neighbor, but please apply it to you. So if you were sitting there and I said, one of the problems laziest, and you jabbed your spouse, no, don't be doing that or just jab yourself. Okay, that's right, laziness. Because all of us have some area in our life where we're lazy and we don't need to be lazy anymore. Now, also, just like with self-control, there's lots of areas in your life where you're not lazy at all. But we're talking about spiritual growth here today, and spiritual growth is very important. And when we look at, at uh, the word for laziness, the, the Latin word means to not care or to lack care for something. You just don't care. Now, it's not, I don't have any cares. Jesus took them all. No, you, you don't care. So we want to grow. Now, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines, see, the early church fathers didn't use the word laziness. They used the, the term sloth. There were seven deadly sins that a thousand years ago, the early church fathers said, we need to really watch out for these seven sins because they will destroy, you know, our forward momentum in God. And one of them they call sloth, which we call laziness. And the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says, here's a definition for sloth, disinclination to action or labor. In other words, you just don't have any desire for action or for labor. And then it gives the spiritual side. It next says spiritual apathy. Apathy is just a lack of care or concern. Spiritual apathy and inactivity. And the Merriam-Webster actually says this, the deadly sin of sloth. Hmm, interesting, the deadly sin of sloth. Now, there are nine verses in the NIV translation that uses the word make every effort. Oftentimes you'll hear me talk, and if I'm not careful, I'll make it sound like we don't need to try, we don't need to make effort, it's all about God. But it's really us in partnership with God, and God has to empower us, and then we need to act on that empowerment. Paul said this, he said, I have worked harder than all the other apostles. It's a pretty strong statement. He said, yet it was really not I, it was, it was God in me that was working. So God in us, God's not lazy. And so he comes to us and helps us make some effort. So we are told nine different times in the NIV translation, and the other translations, your favorite one, will say something similar to this, is to make every effort. Jesus says, make every effort. Now, he's not talking about making an effort during your salvation. Are you with me? But make every effort for spiritual growth. Paul talked about it. Peter talked about it. The writer of Hebrews, which we're not sure who wrote that, says make every effort. That actual phrase, make every effort, is listed nine times in the New Testament. So I want you to remember this. 
God is not opposed to effort. He's not opposed to effort. What he is opposed to is he's opposed to earning. Now, when you think, and I'm talking about earning salvation, because I can tell you that when we obey God's word, there are blessings connected to it that we could feel like, well, we kind of earned that blessing. But when it comes to salvation, nobody earns that. Nobody could earn that. It required Jesus. So the challenge is for me and you to combat laziness, especially spiritual laziness and spiritual apathy. Jesus is teaching a parable in Matthew 25 one time, and it's the parable that most of the older translations call the parable of the talents. Now, that's a great translation. It's just that talent means different things to us today. When you hear the word talent, you usually think of that person can sing or dance or play an instrument or they're very artistic or whatever, and that's not what talent means in, in the older versions. The word talent is actually a unit of, of measure of weight, and so it's how you measured and weighted uh, precious metals, gold, silver. And so this master, who's apparently pretty wealthy, is going on a long journey, and so he gives all his wealth to his three top servants to use, you know, to expand his kingdom while he's gone. And so to one, he gives five. Modern translation called this bags of gold. To one of his servants, he gives five bags of gold. Now, each bag represents three years of a normal laborer's wages. So you get the idea, this isn't like 20 bucks. This is serious money. So the first one gets five bags, equivalent to 15 years of, of, of wages. Uh, to another one gets two, another one gets one. The guy who has five turns them into 10. You might have heard the story. The guy who has two turns it into four. The guy who has one says, when the master comes back, he says, I knew that you were a hard man and that you reap where you don't sow. Now, pause and think about that. What's he saying? You're dishonest. You're a thief. You're reaping where you don't sow. You're gathering where you didn't scatter seed. That's, that's thievery. And he said, so I was afraid. And I dug a hole and I hid all your gold. And now I've dusted it all off. And here it is back to you. I didn't lose a thing. And when Jesus tells the story, he said, the master looks at him and calls him a wicked, lazy servant. Now, my understanding from reading the story is I think the guy was actually lying and making excuses because he, the master says, so, you knew I was a hard man. You could have at least taken my money down to the bank and got me some interest, but you didn't. This servant has something to use, but he doesn't use it. He has resources, but he doesn't use it, and God in the story, isn't happy with this. The master is not happy with this. Now, this is my supposition. The story does not say this. I personally think, this is my personal opinion, so you can do what you want. If the master would have come back, went to that servant, and he said, man, I worked so hard, but I have to say I am so sorry I lost it all. I think it would have been, he would have got a better response out of, hey, you at least went out there and tried to make something happen, but you didn't get it done. You know, E for effort, but he doesn't do anything, and so we're challenged not to be people who do nothing, but we do something. In Proverbs 10.4, it says, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. So again, the challenge from Scripture, let's make sure we're applying ourselves. Hebrews chapter 6, God is not unjust. He will not forget your, what's the next word? He will not forget your what? Work. You're allowed to say it. It is a four-letter word, I understand, but you are allowed to say work. I will not forget your work. 
God will not forget your work. Now, again, we're going to slow down and see a neat insight here from Scripture. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people. Did you ever pause long enough to pay attention to that? When you have helped people, God says, I called it loving on me. Remember Jesus said when you did it for the least of these, you did it to me? And so he says, I will not forget your work and the love you have shown me, this is God speaking, the love you have shown me as you've helped my people and continue to help them. In other words, it wasn't, well, once back in 2018, I helped some people. No, it's, it's help and continue to help. It's serve and continue to serve, volunteer and continue to volunteer, give and continue to give. It's a lifestyle for us believers. And then he says this, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized, so your goals will be accomplished. We do not want you to become what? Lazy. We do not want you to become what? Okay, some of you are going, do I have to actually say the word? Uh, well, don't be lazy. You can say it, lazy. I do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So faith is trusting and believing God. And patience is persistence and diligence. It's never giving up. It's just keep hanging in there. I'm going to be patient long-suffering, faithful, persistent, and then you receive what was promised. So I just think it's neat that God says, when you help people, when you volunteer, serve, give, do whatever you do, you're showing love to God. Do you know if you have some kids and somebody uh, goes out of their way to help your children, you feel loved. It's something that you just do. You just feel loved. Like, and, and there'll be something about them that I just really like that person. Have you ever really had a long conversation? Not at all, but they help my kids. I just really like them. There's something in that that we, we feel loved when somebody loves on our children. So, now, it's one thing to say we're slothful and lazy. I mean, it's one thing for me to get up here and preach, hey, you know what, me, you, all of us, we're slothful and lazy, and we need to get our act together. Now let's close in prayer. Okay, well, it's easy to preach the problem, but how about some help? How about some spiritual insight? How about some, some ways that we can help combat this? Well, I was reading and studying, and I saw some things by a preacher named Brian Wilkerson that I thought was really good, and I want to pass some of his insights along as well as a bunch of mine as well. And one of the things that he talked about was that an approach to combating spiritual laziness, one thing he listed was develop devotion. And I thought about that. Hmm, devotion. That's interesting. Develop devotion. If we develop devotion, there's something about devotion that's a little different than I'm just going to be grittier about this. And by the way, it's okay to make every effort, but devotion has something to do with affection. When you're devoted to someone or something, there's affection there. There's love there. When there's love there, it's not so much duty as it is a joy. There's something about when we care for the people we love, when we do something we love, it's not duty, but joy. We've all had an experience like this. Maybe you've come home, a guy, and, and you're going, I really need to clean that garage. That garage is a mess. Your wife says, you really need to clean that garage. Garage is a mess. And you go, I just don't have it in me today, baby. I just don't have it in me. But then the phone rings. Golf. Hey. We need somebody else to golf with us. 
you, but we're going to golf in a half hour. I can be there. I can, we can make this happen. All of a sudden, you got all this energy. That, but that's only true if you love golf. If you don't love golf, you'll be going, ain't no way I'm going out there for four hours and hit a ball around. But if you love it, all of a sudden you got all this energy to go golf and spend four hours out there. What, what happened? It, there was a devotion there, a love there. It wasn't a duty or a task. It was something you enjoyed doing. And so devotion is very, very important. And it is the opposite of, of duty. When, when we have devotion towards something, that love is there, and it makes us want to act. Not just feel, but actually act. So devotion is about love and labor. So we fall in love with the Lord. How do we develop more devotion for the Lord? It, it all comes back to the Word of God. If you'll go to the Word of God and you'll begin to study and read and think about how good God is, how much he loves you, how kind he is, how he's prepared a place for you and, and how he saved you when you had no thought for him, you start pondering the goodness of God and you'll develop a devotion for the Lord. So the second thing is practice attentiveness. By attentiveness, I mean keeping your eyes and ears open to what maybe the Lord might want to do with you or through you that day. Now, that one gets kind of slippery for me, so I have to keep bringing myself back to that, where I, I say to myself, how might God want to use me today? Well, I'm just going to the store. You, you don't know how much ministry has gone on the store when somebody was attentive and was sensitive to what God wanted to do. And so everywhere you go, you have an assignment from God. See, I think we make a big mistake by people go off to school to become pastors or missionaries or or whatever, we say, wow, you know, they really have a spiritual calling on their life. Every one of us have a spiritual calling on our life. Well, I'm, I'm an engineer. For the glory of God, I hope. I'm a homemaker. For the glory of God, I hope. You know, I'm a doctor or, or a factory worker or a driver or whatever. For the glory of God, <laughs> whatever we are, wherever we are, we are ambassadors for Christ. So I really mean this. I don't think there's anything more spiritual about what I'm doing than about what you might be doing. We should just do whatever God's asked us to do. And if you're doing that for the glory of God, it becomes a very spiritual thing regardless of what it is. So we do it for the glory of God. Now, we do know moral, ethical things. I mean, I've mentioned this before. You can't go out and say, I'm going to be the best bank robber Jesus has ever had. You know, that's not... We're not talking about that, but things God calls us to do. So we start practicing attentiveness where our hearts and our hands are ready. They're ready to hear what God might be saying and to take a chance to be used by him. So in Ephesians, Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, and he says, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live, act, behave like children of the light, and find out what pleases the Lord. Now, this isn't a trick question, but if you were going to make a guess, how could I go about finding out what might please the Lord? Hmm, we could study the Bible. We could learn about God. You know the Bible will reveal the heart of God, what he likes, what he dislikes, what he approves of, what he disapproves of. You can follow Jesus around like they're doing in the Sunday school class, and you'll start seeing, ah, because Jesus, Jesus told the people, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? Just watch me. I mean, he's what we would call in the, in the world, in in the natural world, to chip off the old block. He's more than that, but he's going to reflect the Father because he's God wrapped in a human body. And so here it says, 
we need to find out what pleases the Lord. And then it's implied, it doesn't say it, but when we find out what pleases the Lord, we should do it. Find out what pleases the Lord and do it. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So this attitude moves us to action, and we see that in these next verses. He says in in Ephesians 5.15, be very careful then how you live. So we, we see that action there. This is a lifestyle. Very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That's just like saying, find out what pleases the Lord. Saying it again. Find out what the will of God is. Where are you going to find that out? In the word and in prayer. You'll have time with God and you'll learn what his will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Which debauchery is just unbridled, uncontrolled, sinful, sexual, sensual pleasure. You're just going. You're not dabbling. You're going for it if you're being uh, in debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, And there's all kinds of stuff to do, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs with the Lord. Sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see this, our life's full of action and activity. It's very important. Now, I have some bewares. I learned two things, and I found them to be true. Actually, for clarity, I've learned more than two things in my life, but these are two things on this topic. The first one is this, the less you do, the less you want to do. I learned that as I got older. The less you do, the less you want to do. I also learned this lesson. If you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. It's really true. When when I think of busy people, they'll find a way, they'll look at their schedule, they've got so much to do, they'll figure out and they'll make a sliver of their schedule to get it done. If they don't have anything to do, they're like, I can do that anytime. So a week goes by, a month goes by, a year goes by, a decade goes by. They're standing before the Lord thinking, oh, yeah, I was going to do that, but, you know, too late now. So give it to busy people. They'll get it done. So what happens is, and I think this is more as we get older, we start saying, I'm not doing much, and I really like it. I really like not doing much. So we had to be careful. I've talked to retirees over the years. And I get the idea that things change as we get older. Maybe you were, you know, on a basketball squad as 20 years old, working with young people, and you played five games of basketball every Saturday, and now you're 75, and you're thinking, I don't really feel like I could run up and down a court for five, six hours on a Saturday. But there's always age-appropriate things we can do, regardless of where we get to. So on occasion, I would ask a retiree, and most of the time, by the way, this does not happen but I want to head it off the pass in case it's starting to happen in your life, you can stop it. I would say, hey, can you help out with this project? Not a long-term thing, little thing, age-appropriate thing. Are you with me? And they would say, boy, don't know when I would do that. Don't know where I would get done. And so if I know them, I say, well, let me ask a question. You used to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Uh Uh-huh. You used to have a bunch of kids at home. You run the ball games and church things and choir practice and, and music and drama and everything, and you were on the move all the time. Uh-huh. Now your kids are grown and out of the house, and you no longer work. You, you are saving 40 to 60 hours a week of your life. What do you mean? I don't know where I would do that or how I would find the time. 
what, what's happening? What ha you have 40, 50, 60 hours of discretionary time now. But what's happened is when you got 40, 50, 60 hours of nothing to do, you really like it. I like doing nothing. So you have to train yourself to be very careful to not get stuck in doing nothing. We're told to be careful, not careless. We're told to make the most of every opportunity. We're supposed to seize opportunities. We're supposed to be everything God has called us to be. So I get you can't do everything and that you probably don't want to move at the speed you used to maybe, but we all can do something. We all can do something. And please, if you, I mean, I don't know what excuses are sometimes. I would rather have somebody look at me and say, you know what you just asked me to do? I have zero desire to do it, so no thank you. Other than, I don't know where I would find the time. So be, be careful. We have plenty of time. We just have to use it and use it for the glory of God. Also, a little side note, I want you to know this, and God seems to be okay with this. Most of your time, most of your money, most of your energy, most of your talents, most of your skills, most of that is going to be used on you. Most of the time, I mean, when you even think of the, of the tithe, and I know some people get nervous like a tithe, well, let's, let's pretend that it's okay to tithe. That means 90% of it is yours to do with whatever you want. Isn't that interesting? God didn't say, give me 90% of your money, you can figure out how to live on the other 10. Or some time for prayer or fasting or service or whatever. We have to be very careful because most of it we're using on ourselves, and God apparently is not troubled with that. But it really is sad we say, I'm not going to use anything for the kingdom. So we're not supposed to do life like a drunkard, he said, just stumbling around, you know, doll of senses, not knowing what's going on. We're supposed to be sharp. We're supposed to be paying attention to what God's up to. We're supposed to be using our gifts, our talents, our skills, our resources, our time for the glory of God. We're meant to live life with some passion. So devotion and attentiveness, spiritually speaking, it could be developed by creating some spiritual habits. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage every one of us here to have some time we spend with God every day. Every day. Some time in the word. Some time in prayer. I think morning's a wonderful time, but I'll tell you, if you're just absolutely not a morning person and you just can't seem to get it done, get it done sometime. Get it done on your lunch hour. Get it done in the evening before you go to bed. Another beautiful time to spend some time with God. Just spend some time with God and let your soul and spirit get refreshed. There's beautiful, wonderful devotions out there, devotional books, things you can do to keep yourself alive spiritually. So every day you can kind of set your compass back on true north. Instead of just once a week, you could set your compass every day true north on what God is interested in. Mark Wilkerson wrote this, remember that devotion is inspired by love, not duty. And that makes a difference. He talks about, let's say you want to have a devotion time in the morning. So you set the alarm clock a little bit early. When the alarm clock goes off, he says, if you will think about relationship and not about duty, it'll make a big difference. If you'll say to yourself when the alarm clock goes off, there's someone waiting for me. There's someone waiting for me who wants to hear my heart, wants to share his heart wants to spend time with me, who loves me. It makes a big difference, a big difference. I know some of these things you wonder, is that really true? Because I'm going to challenge your thought life here a little bit. Back several years ago, my daughter bought me and her a thing where we would work out at Farrell's. 
Have you heard of Farrell's, the exercise place in Columbus? And it was in the summertime. Now, I'm not a natural morning person. I, if I got to get up early, I can do it, make it happen, no problem. But it's not my natural thing. You know, grandma, my grandma got up 5 o'clock every morning whether she needed to do it or not. That was her natural rhythm. So we went to like the 7 a.m. class. Well, I can't just wake up and go exercise. I got to wake up. And so I'm getting up all summer long at like 5.45 in the morning to go exercise with my daughter. Now, I doubt I would have done that with too many other people. But it's my daughter. It's devotion. It's affection. It's time together. By the way, she cared zero about time together on the drive to the place. Because by the time, she would get up 10 minutes beforehand, be ready to go. And so I'm, I'm awake now, so we're out in the car. Hey, baby, how's it? This was her posture every morning. Well, she was in the passenger seat. Don't want to talk. Now, she was talkative afterwards, but beforehand, nope, I'm, I'm done. But devotion actually makes it all different. To be able to spend some time with her, hang out with her, made all the difference in the world. So think about relationship and your devotion to God not just, I got a duty, I got something on my to-do list to check off. Now, you may be saying, yeah, but there's some things in my life that don't seem real spiritual. I mean, I need to, I'm kind of lazy when it comes to my health or my fitness or, or my schoolwork or, or cleaning the garage or working on my car or cleaning the house or doing whatever. I don't think any of this stuff is really going to help me with that. Actually, I think it will because I found this out that when you develop a habit in any area, it spills out into other areas. So I think your devotion to God and your tentativeness to God may spill out into other areas. You may hear God whisper to you, clean the house. Now be careful or you'll say, get thee behind me, Satan. But you, you, you develop that, that rhythm with God, and I think it will help you in other areas as well. Change the oil in the car, do whatever. One thing, and I'm serious about this, our whole life is a gift from God, and we're to steward everything. So we should steward our health, our physical bodies. We should steward the, the apartment or the home that we were given. We should steward our automobiles, whatever. We, we, we should steward everything well. And every single person in here, there's some area that you're a champion in, and there's some areas you're not. And so ask the Lord to help you have more motivation in the areas that you're not. Like maybe the kitchen is tough for you. Darlene keeps our kitchen impeccable all the time. I mentioned that before. I mean, it's 355 days a year the kitchen's all cleaned up before she goes to bed. Okay? And so, and then I'll crack up too. Like somebody might be coming over. The house is a wreck. First of all, I've never seen our house a wreck, but I guess there is a a sweatshirt on the floor there, so we'll go pick that up, and now, oh, good, the house is no longer a wreck. So, but that may not be your thing, but whatever it is, ask the Lord to help you with it. And don't feel beat up if you say, I'm never telling Darlene what my kitchen looks like, because that's, that's her thing. But you can get help in some other area. So, all of our lives belong to him. And when it comes to devotion and attentiveness, there was a last Sunday morning, Last Sunday morning, I, I get up earlier than Darlene on Sundays. The rest of the week, it just depends. But on Sunday mornings, I'm up earlier. So I go in the bedroom. I'm getting ready to leave. She's sitting up in bed. And I ask her, I say, would you like a cup of coffee? And she says, absolutely. Because I dote on her all the time. She's, she's so petted. And so 
when I got done giving her her foot massage and, and uh, well, that was quite an exaggeration. But nonetheless, I did make her this beautiful cup of coffee. So she's got this cup of coffee. She's enjoying the moment. It's kind of a nice little moment. And so I walk around to the other side of the bed. We, back several years ago, we got a king-size bed. King-size bed, I guess, are great when you're mad at each other because you cannot even touch each other. First night we had a king-size bed, I rolled over and I swung my arm that way and I said, oh, she must have got up. And I looked over. No, she's still over there. Those things are so big, you can't even reach somebody over there. So I told her, I said, let's keep our marriage alive and have a twin bed. You know, that way we, we can at least, you know, reach each other. And so anyway, I'm walking around that side of the bed. And one of those little rubber hair things, you know, you ladies put in your hair or anybody with long hair, I guess. One of those colorful things. I said, hey, here's one of your things. And I gave it a little toss like that. It landed right in her cup of coffee. It was like, I said, I could not have done that if I would have tried right in that cup of coffee. And for some reason, she didn't want to drink it after the, you know, she didn't want to chew on that hair thing as it fell in. So, I did offer. She said no. That's fine. We went on. I think it was so good, the drink or two she had satisfied her. Now, I was trained that men are supposed to make the coffee in the house. And I think it was actually, I think, I think it was Gail Crane that told me that. Uh, and she says, very biblical, because there's even a whole book written on it called he brews, and so that's where I got the idea that I'm supposed to make the coffee because he brews is right there in the Bible. If you thought that joke was horrible, just blame Gail because she's the one that told that to me. So devotion and attentiveness. So I find it interesting sometimes that, like if I teach on prayer, it's very common that great prayers say, I need to be better at prayer. There's just some kind of passion stirring. Somebody who hasn't prayed in six weeks go, I think I'm fine. And so if you're like a super hardworking person, you're probably thinking, man, I need to be better at this. Like I think of many of you out there, but I think of the Lockmans, you know, uh, Chris and Sarah. Uh, Chris is, uh, I always forget what position he holds in the Marines. And he also is a state trooper. And he also, he and, and Sarah are youth pastors. And he's got three kids. And and they're always doing all kinds of things. But if you ask them to do something, they will almost always find the time somehow to get it done. And they're the type of people here, we, we need not be lazy. Yeah, I need to get better at that. While other people are saying, yeah, I probably should do that. I think I'll put that on my New Year's resolution in 10 months next year. So we all need to work on whatever, wherever we're at. So here's some ideas for us to focus on for the week. Grow in devotion. You'll grow in devotion by spending some time with God in his word, finding more out about him, getting to know him better, falling more in love. Second, practice attentiveness. What might the Holy Spirit be saying? What might God be up to? I was visiting my, my brother in a rehab center. My brother Tony, by the way, you can put him on your prayer list. It was uh, two days after Christmas. He had a stroke, and it really messed him up. And uh, the good news is, is that he's never gone backwards. He's always moving forward. The bad news is that forward progress for a lot of stroke victims, is, is excruciatingly slow, and so it's very slow. So I was visiting this week, and when I was done, I was, um, well, the speech therapist had come in, Taylor, sweet gal, she's going to work with him, and she brought him all kinds of, like, she bought him ice cream and pudding and all kinds of stuff to, to give him. He's also very thin, much like me. Um, so he's even thinner than I am, if you can believe that, and so he needs some extra calories and some help. And so she's going to feed him this stuff, and he was working on it a bit. I said, hey, I'm going to go, let you guys go. And I just sensed in my heart, 
you know, because I pray for them every time I'm there, but I wasn't going to interrupt their thing, so I was just going to leave. And I said, let me pray with you. And so I thought, I think the Lord wants me to pray for him. Maybe, and I was going to pray for Taylor, and I did. And uh, by the way, Taylor's job's a ministry. I don't even know if she's born again or not, but it's a ministry. Whatever we do, and she's got a real sweet spirit, so it wouldn't shock me if she was a believer. Uh, she, whatever we do, we've got to do it for the glory of God. And so I'm praying, and by the way, not a lengthy prayer, probably 60 seconds, 90 tops, and I'm praying. I open up my eyes once, because I did read one time we should watch and pray, and so I opened up my eyes once, and Taylor was so respectful praying. And I look up, my brother Tony is digging out some pudding and eating it while I'm praying, and I'm going... <laughs> come on, man, I said, it's, it's not like a two-hour prayer, you know, it's like 60, you couldn't wait 60 seconds, so anyway, so I think that's progress, he's doing better, because he was able, although it was really cumbersome, he did get a spoon of pudding into his mouth during my prayer, so, um, but be attentive, because the Lord might have used that just for Taylor, and, and if you said, well, maybe the Lord didn't have anything going on, so what, it's always good to pray, didn't hurt anything to pray, wasn't like God got mad at me. How dare you pray? I didn't lead you to pray. Well, he's already led me to pray. We should always pray and never give up. Jesus taught us that. So the third thing is make every effort. I want to encourage you today. It's okay to make an effort. Make every effort. Use some spiritual and natural energy to work at your spiritual growth. Work at your spiritual growth is very, very important. And then something I've been doing lately that doesn't help all the time, but it helps a lot. And it seems simple, but it works for me. It may not for you. But I'll think, man, I really need to do this task or do that. And I'll go, yeah. And then I'll say to myself, I'm serious about this. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Get up and do it. And so I'll get up and do it. Now, like I said, it doesn't always work. It works a whole lot more when I do that. And so I find myself getting more stuff done because when I go, yeah, I go, no, don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Get up and, and do it. So sometimes just telling yourself, don't be lazy. You know, get up and knock it out. Get up and knock it out, and you'll be shocked what might happen. So let's pray together, asking the Holy Spirit to help us.